two of Yukon 360. That's the only podcast ever created in human history that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. 52, we're coming up on our second anniversary. I can't believe we've been doing this for that long. I know. Two years. Time flies when you're having fun. It's true. And it sounds like you're exaggerating when you say things like, the only podcast in the known universe. And it's, but it's so true. true. It's hilarious. Everything is accurate. Yep. I, I never say anything inaccurate. <laughs> That's false. But on okay. this show. But we'll hear about other universes possibly later. Conceivably. Joining me, as always, you've already heard some of their voices, uh, my colleagues, Maxine Philivong. Hello. I've been having an existential crisis about other universes lately. So really? this is not helping me. Oh, wow. Okay. We talk about this a lot. I don't know why. I don't like it. Well, here in this universe, uh, also joined by Julie Bartuka. Scared of universes. Hello. <laughs> Ken Best. Comfortable in the universe. Good. All right. Yeah. There's some multiverse. The multiverse. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Spider-Man. Spider-verse. The Yukon 360-verse. There's all different <laughs> versions of the podcast. I hope none of them are better than this one. That's impossible. <laughs> Never uh, know. I'm sure our physics department would confirm that. So I have to talk to Professor Mallet and see if he's got his time machine ready for us. Yeah. All right. Why don't we jump right into the news? <laughs> Please, God, let's. <laughs> get, get, get off the subject of the multiverse. Julie, you've got some exciting news about uh, a new major. I do. UConn has become the first and only college or university in Connecticut to offer a four-year bachelor's degree in American Sign Language. The major is made up of courses in language, literature, linguistics, and culture. And all of the ASL language courses are taught by deaf faculty in the Department of Linguistics. There's a lot of events uh, already set up and a close relationship with the American School for the Deaf in West Hartford because UConn has had an ASL club for a few years now. And those will provide enrichment opportunities for students in the major. Assistant Professor in Residence of Linguistics, Linda Pelletier, says the major sets students up with the tools they'll need for careers in speech pathology, social work, or education, and a concentration in interpreting offers introductory courses for those who wish to continue their training to become certified interpreters. Students can begin declaring the ASL major on May 1st. Very nice. Ken, what do you got going on? Well, there's a couple of exhibits that have opened as recently as this week uh, on campus, and that will be continuing till the end of this month and beginning of next month that I think you'll be interested in. Our friend Graham Stinnett at the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center has gone through the materials and archives and special collections there, dealing with the railroads, alternative press, and blues to create there and back again a hobo's tale, which examines the nature of hobo culture in the United States. You may recall that the development of railroad systems in the United States helped grow the economy and the westward expansion in the 19th century, which also resulted in itinerant travelers, including Civil War veterans, who jumped on freight trains as they saw it work and traveled around the country. One of the possible origins of the term hobo is the fact that when these travelers were asked their destination, they would reply, homeward bound. Or hobo. The exhibit includes copies of Hobo Times, a form for news, poetry, and photos, and other information for these travelers, a chart of hobo symbols, which is really neat, that provides key information uh, for communication that's understood by the travelers in rail yards, warning of hazards, safe areas, and other information, and several editions of books by A Number One, the famous tramp who claims to have traveled 500,000 miles for $7.61. That sounds really cool. There's a 2005 documentary film, Who is Bozo Texino? by Bill Daniels, which traces a search for the world's greatest boxcar graffiti artist that will be shown on February 6th at a reception. For information, go to the library's website, lib.ucon.edu. The other exhibit is in the Contemporary Art Galleries. Returns us to the underground comics of the 60s and 70s through the art of Robert Crumb, who created Fritz the Cat, 
Mr. Natural, and the iconic Keep On Truckin' posters. The exhibit was curated by Contemporary Art Gallery's director, Barry Rosenberg, from items in the collection of retired UConn drama professor Dale A.J. Rose, who started collecting Crumb's artwork more than 50 years ago. The exhibit runs through March 6th. You can get more information at the Contemporary Art Gallery's website, which is Contemporary Art Galleries, all one word, .ucon.edu. All right. Got to get out to those. Yeah, absolutely. Those those sound great. And, of course, Graham Stennett, friend of the podcast mm-hmm. in this universe or any other. Uh, and in fact, since we're talking about, like, universes and very heady subjects, why don't we get into your story, Ken? Because this is, uh, this is some intense intellectual stuff. Five years ago, I spoke with philosophy professor Susan Schneider when she started to gain national attention for her writings about talks on artificial intelligence. And she was invited by NASA and the Library of Congress to speak about astrobiology and preparing for the discovery of life beyond Earth. Her basic premise is that most advanced alien civilizations that we would encounter would be forms of artificial intelligence, otherwise known as AI. So today, Professor Schneider is director of the Artificial Intelligence Minds and Society Group right here at UConn, and is also the NASA Baruch Bloomberg Chair at the Library of Congress, where her responsibilities include meeting with members of Congress to discuss artificial intelligence policy. She recently published a new book, titled Artificial You, AI, and the Future of Your Mind. And before she left stores for a book tour, we talked about the issues surrounding artificial intelligence. I'm a philosopher of mind and a metaphysician, as well as a cognitive scientist. And for years, I've been fascinated by developments in artificial intelligence. The book is about whether we would really find that consciousness would be an inevitable outgrowth of intelligent synthetic systems. So in other words, would we really find that the artificial intelligences that are in our world in, say, 40 years that are impressively intelligent, would they be conscious? And how would we detect consciousness? And what would it mean to be human And what would it mean about sentience? So that's half the book. The other half of the book is dealing with the nature of the self. I always point out that AI isn't just going to change the world around us. It's going to change the human mind. So what I'm concerned about is the use of invasive AI components inside of our heads. I talk a lot about our need to understand deep questions about what we are before we start playing with fire and, say, replacing parts of our brains with artificial components. Well, that, in fact, in terms of experimentation, is actually in process now, as you report a little bit in the book, and exploring Alzheimer's disease and other issues that might be rectified by neural implants and other technology to improve someone's situation. But you still always come back to the fact of if there's an artificial intelligence, at what point does it become aware of itself if it's just an artificial intelligence? There are all kinds of impressive medical technologies underway. And I'm very supportive of the use of invasive brain chips to help individuals with radical memory loss or locked-in syndrome where they can't move. I think this is all really exciting. What I get worried about, though, is the idea that humans should 
engage in widespread enhancement of their brains. So for instance, Elon Musk has recently declared that we need to keep up with superintelligence, that is intelligence that is synthetic and vastly outsmarts us. And we need to do that by enhancing our brains. And the brain enhancements are also necessary so that we could keep up with pending technological unemployment. So in other words, we need to keep up with the AI so we better become AIs ourselves. So he talks about merging with AI. And I take him to task because I think that the idea that we could truly merge with artificial intelligence in the ways that a lot of tech gurus and transhumanists advocate is actually philosophically not well-founded. For, for a little bit of background, he's most known for SpaceX. Uh, so he's out there trying to do a lot of different things. But you always come back to the examples that you try, that you hold up, one of which is a great example, Commander Data from Star Trek. He's, he's stuck on a planet and he's being attacked and he uploads his uh, neural link to the computer. And you question, well, does that mean it's really him? Can he bring that back and still be the data that he was before he might have been destroyed? And these are the issues that you get to in the book. Yeah, because I think people assume that AIs will have the capacity to be immortal, so they'll somehow be different than us. I see a lot, a sort of glorified sense about our AI mind children. And there's always the assumption that, A, they'll be sentient, so it'll feel like something to be them. And B, they'll be more durable, and they'll even have a seat at the heat death of the universe. They'll live so long. Again, I think all of that's not true. And I use the data example to illustrate that if Commander Data found out that he was on a planet that was about to be destroyed— he would face the same issues conceptually with the idea that he could upload and genuinely survive. I think the idea that you could transfer your thoughts to a different format, like still survive impending death, is conceptually flawed. Well, the work that you're doing with Congress now and trying to look forward a bit, uh, what kinds of questions are, be are you being asked by people in Congress and, and those that you're working with? to try and get a handle on what we should be thinking about going forward with all this technology and, and the question of what's going to happen when things move further than they already yeah. are in the way of technology well, in the mind. There's been a lot of concern over the last few years about deep fake videos, for example. If you're a politician, you don't like that. Nobody likes it, but I mean, your career could be ruined by a deep fake video that has you saying something really rotten that you never said. But there are so many other things as well. So algorithmic discrimination is a big issue. The fact that algorithms that are deep learning based will be data driven. And so if the data itself has hidden biases in it, it can actually lead to a bad result that discriminates against certain groups. And there have been Many members of Congress who've been concerned about that, there's now something called the AI bill. There is an AI caucus. I mean, things have been moving a little slow, I will say. But I think there's a real concern also with China. And the perception is that we've got highly technologically driven authoritarian dictatorship, and how are we going to maintain a safe planet? And then there's a new thing that I see, which is a sort of distrust of tech companies, especially after the Facebook Cambridge Analytica mess. And there's talk of breaking up tech monopolies because 30 years in the future, I think people are really wondering, well, what will be the most powerful entity? Will it even be a government or will it be, say, 
Google. What is the question that you're not being asked that you think should be asked about all of this? Oh, well, the usual thing that happens, we're all too busy to read. And so everybody's looking at the first couple chapters. I probably should have made the first few chapters more accessible. I mean, the ones on machine consciousness are, I think, I'm noticing that reviewers aren't really following the main arguments of the book, sadly. But but hey, it's being reviewed, so I'm grateful. So at the end of the book, I think the last substantial chapter of the book asks whether the mind is a program. And damn, everybody holds that nowadays, right? I mean, so many people. I mean, I'm a cognitive scientist. So, you know, I grew up on that idea. Nowadays, when I teach cognitive science classes, you're doing background on the nature of the mind. I often assign papers that are suggesting that. And I argue against it, even though I am a proponent of the idea that the brain is computational. I just think the idea, though, requires a lot more subtlety. And the idea that we're a program is sort of a bad parse on what's really going on in cognitive science. And it leads us to all sorts of silly views, like the idea, for instance, that we could upload our minds. You see, if the mind is a program, you can upload and download your program, and you could survive the death of your brain. But sadly, I think survival is tied to our substrate. And even though there's a sense in which the brain is computational, I think it's a very fruitful research paradigm in cognitive science does not by any stretch mean that your own life is what we might call substrate independent or multiply realizable so that you could survive if you, say, added all sorts of chips to your brain and deleted your biological material. These are scary things for people to think about. <laughs> Fun, though. But, but the thought just occurred to me because I talked to Mitch Green oh, last cool. year about his book, Know yeah, Thyself in the Class. I don't know if you have talked about this together, but it's probably getting the two of you in the same room to discuss these issues because, you know, self-awareness and knowing yourself, this all comes together at some oh, point. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, Mitch and I co-taught a class. Of course, I'd be keen on talking to Mitch about all this. You bet. Like, He's deep. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, there's Socrates and then there's Mitch. <laughs> so. That's awesome. <laughs> That was another freaky thing that freaks me out. AI, talking about brains, you know, connected to the mainframe or whatever. Well, um, we just don't know where any of this is going, which is why she's around to look at the philosophical and ethical questions that need to be considered when we're, we're talking about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Julie? Yeah. What do you have for us? A little different, a little more uh, Changing gears down to earth, bit. if we will, right here in this universe for sure. UConn School of Engineering has been recognized in recent years as being a national leader among engineering schools for fostering diversity, particularly when it comes to increasing the number of women students and faculty, as women have been historically underrepresented in the field. A few years ago, a Washington Post survey said that UConn was the number one public institution in the country in terms of growing female undergraduate engineering students in the years between 2010 and 2015. And then back in November, Women Engineer Magazine named UConn School of Engineering to its top 20 universities list based on the diversity of students and faculty, as well as the curriculum and the school's ability to foster a diverse and inclusive learning environment. I spoke with Dan Berkey, who has been Associate Dean for Undergraduate Education, Outreach, and Diversity in the school since 2013. He's also a chemical and biomolecular engineering faculty member and told me about how the school has evolved its curriculum and how it has increased diversity during his tenure.
One of the things that I think we've done is really work on the pipeline process. A lot of people think that it's just as simple potentially as snapping your fingers and admitting more women into the School of Engineering. Like, why can't we just be at, at gender parity immediately? And part of that is, is that people look at engineering sort of monolithically sometimes. Oh, be an engineer. It's like, well, we have 11 or 12 different majors. And so there's a lot of diversity. And, you know, mechanical engineers do things very different from chemical engineers, do very different things from manufacturing engineers, very different from environmental engineers. So there's a broad range of interest. And so you've got to think about what students are interested in when you consider engineering. The other part of that is then you have to start thinking about, well, how do I keep younger students in grade school and high school interested in those things so that they decide they want to apply to engineering school and come and study engineering at the collegiate level. So, you know, one of the things that I think we've been very strong at is really building that pipeline and, and touching students all along that pathway from grade school all the way through high school, all the way into applying to college. What are some of the concrete ways we do that? I know you have the Engineering Diversity and Outreach Center that runs a lot of different programs. I'm very, very blessed in that we have a really great team working for us. Kevin McLaughlin and Velda Alfred Abney are my two folks who work in the Engineering Diversity and Outreach Office, and we also rely on a tremendous number of student volunteers. So one of the big things that we do is the Engineering Ambassadors Program, where we have all of our students that are, are trained to go out and, and interact with young students in grade schools and high schools throughout the state. And they do hundreds of visits a year, touch thousands of students' lives, and really show them what it's like to be an engineer. They talk about what the practice of engineering is about. They get them excited with hands-on demos. They show them, oh, yes, people people who look like me and, and have my background go on and study engineering and, and become engineers. So a lot of it is just being present. And so that's one of the things that we, we really work on with regards to that pipeline building is getting our students in front of younger students and showing them this is something that you can do. Another thing that we do a lot of is we do some specific programs really aimed at young women. One of the biggest ones we do is Multiply Your Options, which is for young grade school girls. It's hundreds of girls now that come to the university and interact with our alumni and professional female engineers and really get to see what it's like to be an engineer in, in the state of Connecticut or in the practice of, of engineering here in the state. That mentorship and that role modeling is a huge component of getting young women interested in engineering. Not that they're not interested in engineering already, but showing them what the pathways for them actually are. And this is a very obvious, the answer seat should seem obvious, but I want to hear from you. Why is it important to increase diversity in engineering? One of the main reasons I think it's important is that you don't want monolithic ideas, right? People don't think of engineering sometimes as creative. They think of it as, oh, it's just math and science and you follow the rules and you plug the things into the equation and out pops the answer. Engineering is actually incredibly creative. It's incredibly necessary for people to think outside the box and bring different experiences and different ideas and different plans to the table. And if you've only got one kind of person or one kind of thinking at the table, your solutions are not really going to be very, very strong, very diverse, very interesting. You miss out on solutions and important solutions and potentially life-saving solutions when you ignore big swaths of the contributors. Absolutely. How has the number of women faculty changed over the past 
several years. So, you know, that's obviously something that the school continues to work on. And that's also a pipeline issue because one of the things that they talk about is, well, why can't we just hire more women faculty? And that's, again, because if you don't have women undergraduates, you don't have women that continue on to graduate school who then are interested in becoming faculty. And there's also, I'm sure my female colleagues would would tell you, there's a lot of structural barriers Mm -hmm. and a lot of implicit bias in faculty hiring nationwide. I think we've done uh, a really tremendous job uh, improving that over the last seven or eight years that I've been in an administrative role. When I started in chemical engineering in 2010, we had one uh, female faculty member in the department, and wow. now we have, I think, five or six. Okay. And uh, at so least one department head, right? And at least one department head, Marissa, over in civil and environmental yeah. engineering, who we're super excited about and has been extraordinarily successful in her first year on the job. We've made that a priority and had faculty searches and hiring with that diversity in mind. And, and the dean, you know, Kazim Kazarunian, has been a fantastic advocate for that. Having increased women faculty really also helps our current students, right? Because again, so much of that is role modeling Mm -hmm. and saying these are successful women that have gone on to to be, you know, engineers and be faculty members. And if that's something that I want to do, then that's totally possible. There's a lot else that goes into it in terms of support networks and providing, you know, both academic and non-academic support. But the power of just having that visibility is, is such an important part of that success. And you were telling me a little bit by email about some of the new initiatives, thinking of diversity in a different way, that make freshman engineering curriculum a little bit more interdisciplinary Mm -hmm. and are bringing in some different kind of viewpoints. Tell me more about that. We redesigned our freshman engineering curriculum a couple of years ago because it was very siloed. So mechanical engineers sort of do what they want. The environmental engineers do what they want. The chemical engineers do what they want. And that's not how things work in the real world. So we wanted to get students working together. And we wanted to make it more project-based. We wanted to get it more hands-on. Engineering students are often tinkerers. They get into engineering because they want to build things or design things or they have that innate curiosity. And so we wanted to feed that in that freshman year. Engineering is a lot of math and science and foundational work. And there's been articles in the New York Times and all these places about why is there this brain drain in, in SEM? It's because we drown them in just technical classes classes and don't let them do anything creative or interesting for the first couple of years. And so this was really in response to that. We really wanted to say, all right, here's this freshman. You walk in and here's a problem. Here's an ill-defined problem. Here's a real-world kind of design problem. We're not going to give you a whole lot of information other than what the goal is. We want you to use that creativity and your passion and your interest and your fresh eyes to try and solve those uh, problems. We've tied them a lot to to the uh, National Academy of Engineering grand challenges, so things about how do we provide power for a growing population, how do we provide potable water in developing areas, how do we provide infrastructure, and so big picture problems that, that they may work on as some part in their career. And getting them to talk and, and brainstorm and think about that and work together in teams has been a real big part of doing that. The other part that I think is really interesting with that is that we've – I've really tried to make it multidisciplinary at at the school level. So I've been working really closely with a colleague of mine in the School of Education, Mike Young, to bring in best practices from education and then also do some really interesting pedagogical things with the class. And actually, we have this new Kranicki Institute with the School of Fine Arts that's all about – bridging the gap between what engineers do and what happens in fine arts. We've actually brought in a a faculty member from the School of Fine Arts to talk about design and the process of design for this spring's class. So we've got education involved, we've got fine arts involved, we've got engineering involved, really trying to show students that engineering is a creative endeavor and, and that they can really feed that part of their imagination. That was great. Thank you for that. Changing gears again. I'd like to go back to the past. To a oh, time. do you? Is this something we do? 
at, we're going to visit Tom's History Corner uh, circa the spring of 1960. Mm, good time. And we're going to talk about flags. Oh. So in March 1960, uh, as you're probably aware, there was a burgeoning student civil rights movement happening. Mm-hmm. The uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had been founded at Shaw University that winter, which would play a major role in the civil rights movement. Also in North Carolina, the uh, students in Greensboro were the first to have staged lunch counter sit-ins mm-hmm. that winter. And at UConn, a group of students got together, formed a civil rights committee to raise money for the legal defense of the students in North Carolina. And also to uh, march through campus to, I guess, raise awareness about uh, the civil rights struggle in America. As they were marching through campus in late March of 1960, they passed a uh, fraternity residence where the members had uh, hung out a Nazi flag. <laughs> yep. In 1960? In 1960. Well, it happens today, so. This was picked up by uh, National Wire Services. As it should have been. <laughs> uh, and uh, it caused a bit of a stir. The president of the fraternity wrote a letter to the Daily Campus saying, it was all in good fun. And they also hung out the Nazi flag when the ROTC cadets would march by. Hey, kids, just a, just a tip. Never fun to hang a Nazi flag anywhere for any reason. But this was not the only instance of a totalitarian flag being flown not. on campus in the spring of 1960. May 1960, about six weeks later, there's going to be a major civil defense event held at UConn. UConn played a key role in the state's civil defense plan, which I'll get into probably in another history corner. But Governor Abraham Ribicoff was going to be here. Lots of other big wigs were going to be here. And there's going to be a big drill where sirens would sound and uh, students and faculty would have to, like, duck and cover, like, as if that would make any difference in the event of a nuclear war. <laughs> and uh, each dorm had an air raid warden assigned. I mean, it was just they were sort of preparing for World War II in, you know, the face of World War III. It wasn't a good idea. But anyway, they did it. They loved it. Civil defense. They loved it. The day that Abraham Ribikoff uh, arrived on campus, a different fraternity greeted him by hanging out a Soviet flag. Name names. Who are these fraternities? Uh, the, well, the Soviet flag fraternity is, uh, let's see, that uh, they were known as uh, Sheikhs. That's Theta Sigma Chi. And so it's a big, it looks homemade to me. I'll post a picture of it online. And uh, asked for comment on the flag hanging. The governor shook his head negatively and looked away. This is from the Daily Campus. A state trooper who drove Daily Campus photo editor Les Archambault during the activity said, I've heard about this sort of thing. It isn't good. <laughs> um, you think? However, <laughs> unlike with the Nazi flag, somebody got expelled for the Soviet flag. Paul Bedell, a member of Theta Sigma Chi, was expelled uh, after the uh, Soviet flag prank. He appealed personally to Governor Ribikoff, who said, my hope is that the university would not expel him, but it's up to them. He wrote a letter of apology. Uh, however, uh, Dr. Arwood Northby, Dir- yes. Director of the Division of Student Personnel said uh, he was uh, not interested in, in, in Bedell's apology. Also declined to comment on why no one had been punished for the Nazi flag affair. So uh, I actually didn't find out if uh, Paul Bedell was ever instated. I couldn't find a news story saying one way or the other. I'll keep looking. You mean I'm if curious. he was let ba- to come if he was back? back and, yeah, yeah, if the expulsion was lifted. Wow. Paul um, Bedell, if you're out there. Paul Bedell. This was also, by the way, the same the same month that the Daily Scampus was published that got the editor um, oh, uh, expelled. Oh, talked about in a previous episode. It was the, what was the reasoning for that? I don't remember. Was, what did he do? Well, so the reasoning was that the uh, the Daily Scampus that year was pornographic. Ah, yes. But he apparently he had been sort of a thorn in the side of the administration. I remember that. Why? I know the major fear of the Russians and the Soviets and all that, but why would that be considered worse than a Nazi flag? My my guess is because the governor was there. Gotcha. Yeah. 
That's, always, <laughs> that's a bad that's look. A, that, is, that is a bad look. <laughs> bad look. We only care if important people are right. watching. <laughs> yeah, if it's just students well, in a civil rights march, who cares? The well, governor's yeah, here. You, you also need to recall that it was around the time of the presidential election. Yep. And uh, Governor Ribicoff was a huge supporter of John F. Kennedy okay. back then. And uh, there was, I, th- I believe there was talk that he might be part of the administration should he get elected, all of that kind of stuff. All these political factors came into effect back then. Well, famously also, uh, Ribicoff in 1968, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, from the floor of the convention, criticized what he called the Gestapo tactics of the Chicago Police Department in beating up demonstrators. Hmm. And the mayor responded uh, with words that I will not repeat, but you can look up and would certainly get him expelled from UConn here in 2020. <laughs> Maxine. Yes. Any, anything to add to this discussion? Nothing to add. So I'm curious, uh, as you're our... Uh, what are you? I think I'm on the cusp of being a millennial Gen Z because I was born in 97. So oh my God, say that. that makes me feel 125. <laughs> so I think you're Gen Z. You're close to it. What do you I, Gen Z is known as being very activist. And think, what do you see on campus? Do you think anything like those things would oh, happen? If there, there wouldn't be a Nazi flag being well, flown. Obviously. I yeah. uh, there's a lot of demonstrations. Yeah, for sure. I don't think anyone's gotten arrested. Which is a good thing. Which would be a bad luck for the university, yeah. sure. Yeah. And Jane Fonda gets arrested all the time. Sometimes it's sometimes it helps your cause. Sometimes <laughs> you just got to get arrested. Off campus. Get arrested off campus. Off campus. Also, off campus. please don't hang any Nazi flags Oh, my campus. God. No. I don't think anyone would gather that that's what we were. This is a public service announcement. You're this fine. is a public service don't announcement. If you're out there, if you think, you know what would be funny? Good, not, good not old funny, swastika. Guys. Not funny. Not funny. Nope. And and a sneak peek of uh, the next episode that's coming up, we'll be talking about anti-fascism movements in the United States Mm. with Professor Christopher Viles of the American Studies Department because he just co-edited a book about that. Maybe by that point I will have found out if Paul Bedell got reinstated as a student. Get on it. All right. That's it for Tom's History Corner. Good times. We've learned a lot. We have. Always Um, do. We always do. If you want to learn even more, you can follow us on Twitter.com at Yukon Podcast or at Maine underscore old where I will post a picture of the Soviet flag. Apparently there's no picture of the Nazi flag, which is probably That's for the probably best. okay, yeah. For we don't best. need to be posting that. Maxine, what do you want folks to know? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Maxine Philibon. You have a new cat? I did get a new cat. <laughs> he's 21 pounds. Wow. <laughs> he's, he's bigger than my friend's four-month-old niece. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love him so much. His name is Senator Jonathan Salami. Did you um, <laughs> rescue him? Yeah, we rescued him. Aww. He's five years old. He's very big. <laughs> we love him. That's awesome. So, that's amazing. Congrats. Where did the name come from? We made that up. <laughs> <laughs> Senator Salami is a good name. It Senator Salami is a very good yeah. name. It is a good name. Julie, do you have a new cat? I don't. I met Julie Bartuka. Nothing exciting is happening over there. But if you feel like following me, go for it. That w- wow! What you're really yeah, ringing endorsement. I deleted the Twitter app off my phone the other day because uh, it was causing probably smart. me a lot of stress. Probably smart. Yeah. Ken, we know you're on Twitter 24 <laughs> seven under under a variety of alts. But uh, what else should people know about you? Well, more importantly, the return of good music on Saturdays at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Can you WH- say Saturday again? I'm sorry. I just want you to say words properly. I'm still struggling with a cold. Okay. That's it. <laughs> on Saturdays at 3 p.m. on WHUS, Yay. 91.7 on your FM dial, streaming online at whus.org. 
you can't sound alternative. If you like grindcore, that's where to go. Well, do you take Tom, requests? T- t- uh, Tom is always welcome to drop by the <laughs> studio with the grindcore yeah. because uh, we follow the philosophy of the late great Duke Ellington. There's two kinds of music. There's good music and the other kind. Wise words. I would only bring the good grindcore. Um, <laughs> I would expect nothing less. Uh, all right, everyone. Thanks for listening this week. And uh, please come back. Please come back in a fortnight. Ken, don't hit any buttons today.